This is IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your host, Radio Joe Hughes, and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. Good day, wherever you're listening from, and welcome to IAQ Radio Plus. This week is episode number 590. And we welcome Lindsay Cook, the new AIHA president, for a show we're calling Healthier Workplaces, A Healthier World. Before we get started, we want to thank our sponsors. They're the reason IAQ Radio is still free. IAQ Radio Association sponsors are the American Conference of Governmental Industrial Hygienists. Learn more at acgih.org. The Cleaning Industry Research Institute. Learn more at CIRIScience.org. The Indoor Air Quality Association. Learn more at IAQA.org. AIHA. Healthier workplaces, a healthier world. Learn more at AIHA.org. And the Restoration Industry Association. Learn more at RestorationIndustry.org. IAQ Radio Industry Sponsors are AEML Laboratories. Learn more at AEMLINC.com. Particles Plus. Learn more at ParticlesPlus.com. And Healthy Indoors Magazine. Subscriptions available at HealthyIndoors.com. And now you can win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to czlotnik at cs.com. Or if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now, here's the Z-Man with this week's IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Hello, everyone. Congratulations go out to Dale Saylor, Belfort, Chicago, Illinois, who was first to identify the norovirus as the very contagious virus causing gastrointestinal illness associated with cruise ships. The IQ Radio trivia question for today, Friday, June 19th, 2020, has been sponsored by IDEA, a solution chemistry company providing unique solutions to odor removal surface cleaning, and decontamination problems. Here's today's IAQ Radio trivia question. Name AIHA's first president. Back to you, Joe. Okay, so today we've got Lindsey Cook. He's the latest AIHA president, just uh, joined, just became president in June at the end of AIHCE uh, Experience 2020. Prior to his recent retirement, he was the senior vice president at the EI Group, Inc., an environmental health and safety consulting firm in Mooresville, North Carolina. Mr. Cook is a graduate of the University of North Carolina with an undergraduate degree in chemistry and a graduate degree from the industrial hygiene program. Welcome, Lindsay. Thanks, Joe. Glad to be here with you today. It's great to have you uh, on, on IAQ Radio and looking forward to a great discussion. Uh, let's, let's talk a little bit first about your own background and how you got involved in the industrial hygiene world. Sure. Well, I've been involved in <clears throat> this business for over 40 years now. Uh, you know, it's seemed a lot longer looking at it from that end than it does looking back on it. Uh, some days it almost seems like a blink of an eye, but back in those days, uh, folks really didn't 
start out with a plan to become an industrial hygienist. They kind of found it somewhere along the way, and I was no different. I had an undergraduate degree in chemistry, and uh, yeah, that was back in the mid-70s. Some of you may remember the, the oil shocks at the time. Wasn't a whole lot of job prospects for chemists at that point, so I did a lot of things, construction work, shoveled asphalt. Uh, got to thinking I probably need to do something else and I uh, was talking to the Office of State Personnel here in North Carolina and he said, Lindsay, I got two jobs for you. Might be good options. One is a uh, chemical analyst with the State Bureau of Investigation. Um, it's a lab job, but uh, we're going to have to give you a gun and a badge and you're going to be an agent because sometimes our expert witnesses at court uh, run into some intimidating folks outside the courthouse. Uh, and the other one is this new thing over in the health department called industrial hygiene engineer. Uh, so I wasn't too keen on being an SBI agent at that point. Little did I know I was passing up a potential opportunity to be a TV star as a CSI investigator down the road. But uh, I went over to the health department and uh, Took the job as an IH and uh, have never looked back. I mean, it was a great opportunity to uh, to get started in this field. And this was um, North Carolina has a good in, uh, graduate school of in, industrial hygiene. Is that where you kind of got your feet wet in the whole IH world? Well, uh, as I said, I had my basic sciences background when I started and did some, uh, <clears throat> you know, on the job training, if you will, fundamentals courses and short courses and those kinds of things to kind of get my feet wet. Uh, as a you know, Department of Labor industrial hygienist, there's some specific courses you have to attend before you can become a compliance officer. Uh, but after three years or so of that work, I said, this, this looks pretty good. Uh, probably need to get some more education. So at that point, I went back to graduate school uh, and it was in the School of Public Health environmental sciences and engineering and the program was entitled air and industrial hygiene so uh, it was a year and a half of graduate study before i got my master's and then got back into the industrial hygiene arena i see okay and now let's talk a little bit about your, your experience at aiha um you've been you know volunteering for the organization for a long time i guess um as a you know, during that, that period of time, you kind of decided to get more involved in the leadership. Can you tell people a little bit about what happened there and, and how you ended up becoming president of AIHA? Sure. Um, it, it's been an interesting journey. Um, I found early on uh, advice I got from mentors and others that a good way to learn more about what we're involved in is to get involved in um, some of the committee work. I started out on the personal protective devices committee back in the early 80s and uh, participated in a, a number of uh, activities. Probably the my greatest activity was involvement with the AIHA ANSI Z9 ventilation committee. I was on that for probably 20 years, actually chaired it. Don't know if you're familiar with that or not, but we put out a lot of ANSI Z standards, Z9.5 laboratory ventilation, 9.2 fundamentals, a lot of a lot of work in the ventilation arena. Uh, so I've tried to stay involved in the technical aspects uh, of what the association is doing. And towards the end of the 90s, I was asked to join the board of AIHA. And I did that. I served on the board from 99 to 2001, I believe it was. 
And uh, it took a little hiatus at that point, and I think it was, I forget the year, 2013 or something like that, they called me back and asked if I would like to run for treasurer. I did that and then progressed into the, uh, the role of vice president, which is a, a four-year track, uh, vice president, president-elect, president, and past president. And I have, I'm just in my third year now as president of the association. So it's been a gradual evolution. Uh, and I found it to be rewarding and worthwhile. You get to know and meet a lot of interesting folks and uh, good opportunities for discussion as well as an opportunity to, uh, to give back to the association. So it's a, like a four-year term, but, but you start out as the president-elect and then you're, you're actually president for a year and then past president. So during that, that term, what, what are your main goals for the organization? Do you come in with like, a, you know, here's, here's what I'd like to see us accomplish during this, this period of time where I'm, you know, pros, uh, becoming president, president, and past president? Well, as you can imagine, with one year, you can't expect to make a lot of uh, impact or change on an organization. And one of my goals is to continue on with a lot of the programs that uh, presidents before me and our board have, have embarked on. Um, as I said, I was treasurer and then this four-year term. So I'm six years in this time around. I've got a fair history of you know, what we've been doing as an association. Uh, one of my goals as president is to expand on our uh, association with uh, similar groups, our uh, affiliates, uh, other groups like ASSP, ACGIH, uh, our friends in Occupational Environmental Medicine, uh, Biological Safety Association, NIOSH, to see how we can work together to leverage our impact. Uh, clearly, you know, COVID-19 has thrown a wrench in everybody's works these days. So we're all facing a lot of change in that arena. But uh, I was in a conversation the other day and I really, in my 40 plus years of industrial hygiene, can't recall a single event that has done more to uh, shine the spotlight on our profession than what we've been experiencing for the last couple of months. Yeah. Uh, we've, we've introduced some new partnerships uh, with our Back to Work Safely program. Uh, American Dental Association, American Hospital Association, and uh, of interest to some of your listeners uh, might be the fact that we are at this point exploring a, a joint task force with the Restoration Industry Association and IICRC. As you know, many of our members have uh, experience in respiratory protection, disinfection protocols, and a number of those other issues. So yeah, we're looking forward to a, uh, an effective partnership there as well. So that's really my primary goal at this point, how we can work together to further the profession. That's, that's fascinating. I did not know that. Um, and it's, it's great because, you know, we're seeing more organizations coming together to work toward a common goal and um, seeing more cooperation and coordination between those oftentimes the um what we call the ieps the indoor environmental professionals the certified industrial hygienists the safety professionals will oversee projects and the ria and iicrc registrants and members who are the ones in the you know in, in the trenches trying to um complete projects that a lot of these folks are overseeing. So I really, uh, I commend you on that. And I hope that works out. Um, what 
well, I don't want to go too far into that because I'm sure you're just kind of getting started on it, but that's a, that's a great thing to hear. Good. Yeah, hopefully that will be um, put together here in the not too distant future. As I said, we just really started those discussions within the last month or so. So I'm hoping we can move that forward quickly, but uh, we'll see. Stay tuned. I would, yeah, we'll definitely follow up on that. I also wanted to just quickly follow up on the ventilation. You, you, you were a big part of that ventilation work that uh, AIHA has done over the years. And I am a little bit familiar with it because our old technical director, Dr. Dietrich Weil, always spoke very highly of the uh, AIHA's ventilation program and how, you know, the work they did with lab, uh, lab safety and ventilation. So uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Dr. Wow or not, but um, he, he always spoke real highly of that program. Yes, I think they've made a lot of contribution to improvements in not only laboratory ventilation, but a lot of the other concepts in ventilation. In fact, talking about working together, we had a lot of members of our group that were also members of the ACGIH, Industrial Ventilation Committee. So there was a lot of cross-pollinization on ideas and topics. I'd like to think that we made a reasonable contribution to the growth and expansion of uh, industrial ventilation over the years. Have you worked much with um, ASHRAE or are you, are you talking to them much about the um, cooperation and coordination? Um, we have discussions with them. I can't off the top of my head think of specific projects. I know that we have a lot of ASHRAE members who are members of our committees and work groups that are developing documents. We get input from them on a regular basis. Um, you know, we have interaction at each other's meetings and those kinds of things. But uh, yeah, they, they are a key component of, uh, you know, the allied associations that we need to be working with and communicating with. This is just so uh, rewarding for Cliff and I to see this all coming together. We've been advocating for this for, you know, 13 years we've been doing this show. And we had the RIA and IICRC leadership on a couple of weeks back. And uh, great to see all these organizations working together. I know IAQA has been working with uh, AIHA on some, some things. There was, uh, they had an allied industries uh, group that I think you're a part of as well. So, Great to see, and I really look forward to hearing more in the future. Um, one of the other things you mentioned that wasn't on my list to talk about, but it, it just came, it seems to me a lot of times when we uh, work with certified industrial hygienists and people with the AIHA background, it's almost like a, a brotherhood with uh, the certified safety professionals. I noticed you've got your CIHA and your certified safety professional, and a lot of industrial hygiene folks do that as well. Um, what, what what does that mean to you as far as, you know, having both the CIH and the, and the CSP? I just, like I say, I see it all the time, so I assume it must have helped you in your, in your career as a consultant. Oh, it certainly has. It has broadened the, the range of topics that I'm involved in, both as a consultant as, and as a, a, an EHS manager. Um, it's been interesting to watch the evolution of the profession uh, over the last 40 plus years. When I first started out, I really was an industrial hygienist. We went in plants. I can still remember 
know, the first industrial plant I went in with concrete floors and big punch presses, high ceilings, carts, and people moving around left and right. It was fascinating. And uh, I still enjoy that part of the profession, being able to get out and, and see what, uh, how things are made, how people have to earn a living, some of the risks that they face. But at that point, you know, IH and safety were two separate disciplines. We were actually in two separate departments of uh, the state of North Carolina. But as we got into the 80s, you know, we start to started to see health and safety kind of merge together uh, with the advent of RECRA and some of the other environmental concerns. We started to see EHS. Um, <laughs> computers showed up on desktops. You know, we got out of industry and into uh, academia, office buildings, those kinds of things uh, that pushed us into the built environment. Uh, you know, we started to see asbestos and then in the 90s, we're talking about dampness, uh, moldy buildings. You know, so the, the profession has continued to evolve and I think uh, a lot of the folks that have been successful have tried to broaden their knowledge to be able to you know, discuss and deal with many of these issues that we face. Uh, you know, even today, the, the profession continues to change. Uh, we're talking about total worker health, uh, stresses that the employee, the worker may experience, whether they're on the job or somewhere else. We talk about the psychological element of work, you know, whether it's uh, just simple placement of controls for effectiveness or stress over, uh, you know, an argument with a supervisor or a spouse that gets brought into the workplace. Um, yeah, the profession continues to evolve and grow. And I think um, that's one of the, the beauties of this profession that I'm involved in is you can go in so many different directions. At this point, it's hard to become, you know, proficient in every uh, particular aspect of, of what we do. But uh, you know, there's certainly any number of directions that you can choose to move your career if you find something that's of interest. Well, and as you mentioned, you know, now with the COVID-19, you're involved with infection control more than probably you ever were and uh, working more with hospitals. And, and now with people trying to go back to work, you're looking at how, you know, how do we protect those workers from both the health and safety issues they faced before they left. And now this added health and safety issue of, uh, well, health issue of infectious, you know, COVID-19. So um, it's probably been a very challenging time for the, the certified industrial hygienist. What, what are you hearing out there from them as far as, you know, a lot, of, a lot of businesses were shut down and a lot of your membership works for companies. You know, they're, they're employed by a steel maker or a chemistry, you know, chemical plant or a, maybe a pharmaceutical plant, um, are a lot of them out of work at this point? Um, or have they been able to continue because they're essential workers? What are you hearing from them? Well, you're right. Uh, our staff at AIHA, Government Affairs and others uh, were successful in getting industrial hygienists as well as occupational health and safety professionals uh, declared as essential workers, uh, which is obvious to most of us that are involved in this field. I mean, we're respiratory protection experts. We deal with protocols and disinfection and biological risks. So it, it just makes sense. But um, 
I have heard just anecdotally and talking with folks that some of the traditional industrial hygiene types of things that uh, have been done in the past, maybe surveys or training programs uh, because of the social distancing elements. I mean, after all, we're hanging pumps on people's belts and pinning samplers to their collars. Some yeah. of that work has slowed down. But on the other hand, I also hear from folks that uh, the COVID-19 has generated a lot of requests, uh, whether it's respirator fit testing, whether it's helping folks uh, to develop protocols for return to work, for cleaning, um, disinfection, all those other things, even uh, helping set up programs for employee screening uh, as employees return to work at essential businesses. So uh, it's kind of a double-edged sword, but uh, I am hearing that some of the typical IH stuff is slowly starting to come back, but uh, there's been a lot to do, no doubt about that. Yeah, it's been a real challenge, I'm sure, for a lot of the membership. And uh, Cliff, I want to just make sure I give you a chance to jump in if you had a question or a follow-up. Not yet, Joe. Okay. What I'd like to do is move on now to the AIHCE, your recent conference that's uh, a big event every year. You know, you get, I think, I may be wrong, but more like like me, five thousand people attend that event in person when you when you had it um, when you're able to attend in person. This year it went virtual. I'm wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about some of the lessons learned. You know how it went. Um, some of the lessons you may have learned as a result of trying to do this rather large conference virtually. Sure, Joe. Yeah, and you're right. We usually have between four and 5,000 folks uh, at our face-to-face in-person conference. Uh, and as you may expect, those things are you know, started on years in advance. We're talking about contracts with hotels and conference centers. The program itself generally comes together over the year prior to the conference. So uh, with all this COVID-19 that came to pass in early March, it really threw us for a loop. And my hat is off to our staff for the ability to make this 180 degree pivot to a virtual conference in that short period of time. Uh, We were pleased with how it came out. We actually had over 2,000 people uh, register for the virtual conference, which is uh, almost half of what we would get at a walk-in conference. And I mean, we were almost overwhelmed by that. In fact, uh, probably some of that contributed to a few of those hiccups we had on the first day, but staff got their heads together, sorted it out. And I mean, you know, we've heard nothing but positive comments about uh, how the conference came out. Um, Yeah, one of the interesting offshoots of that is uh, typically the PDCs, our professional development uh, sessions that we hold in conjunction with conference, are typically limited by the size of the room, but we found that we could actually register more participants uh, in the PDCs because of the virtual format, uh, where in the past, folks had been closed out if they didn't get registered for the, uh, you know, the popular ones promptly, uh, and that was something that uh, we hadn't anticipated, but all in all, we were pleased. Uh, I think we will continue to, to see these kinds of conferences. A lot of folks were saying they enjoyed the, the virtual aspect, uh, that it gave them you know, more time. Uh, they didn't have to travel. They were better able to sit and absorb the sessions and could move around with having to walk from one end of the conference center to the other. I mean, we all miss that face-to-face contact and the opportunity to have sidebar conversations in the halls and shake hands with old friends. So somehow, I think we've got to figure out a way to to come at it from both sides. But uh, rest assured, we'll continue to look for, um, for approaches to that. But 
I think it's pretty clear we're in a new environment here and we're going to have to figure out how we adapt to that. It sounds like you are adapting and that uh, I'm sure you've got plans for next year. Where, where are you supposed to be next year if it goes uh, in person? Well, the plan right now is for Dallas, Texas. Uh, Dallas, Texas. That will be the last week of May, I believe. And, uh, yeah, we're keeping our fingers crossed, but uh, it just depends on who you talk to as to how long this is going to go on. But uh, we'll be ready in one way, shape, or form. I see. Yeah, that's a tough call. I mean, May of next year, who knows where we'll be at that point. Uh, we may be in for a third wave by then. I don't know. But uh, hopefully we'll have some kind of uh, vaccination or vaccine or, you know, at least better treatment for it. Because right now it just looks like uh, it's not going away anytime soon. And, uh, you know, I, that was another question I kind of had that I've, I've been thinking a little bit about this. You know, the flu just the, the regular flu is um, obviously a, a major issue. And, and I'm wondering in the past, do you know if, if workplaces and uh, industrial hygienists were involved in, in um, the same kind of, you know, planning and, and preparation for flu season as what you're seeing now with the COVID-19? And, and if, if not, do you expect that to be, more of an emphasis this year when the flu season comes around? Well, I think you're right. Uh, there will clearly be an emphasis on what's going on. This has been a particularly bad flu, as, as we know by the statistics that we all see. Um, there have been several other occurrences. Uh, you know, we had SARS, MERS, uh, avian influenza, uh, other things that uh, have popped up over the last decade or two where industrial hygienists uh, have been called in to help with some planning, uh, a lot of concerns about the potential for pandemics. Uh, some of those previous ones didn't pan out like some of the uh, folks had suggested the worst case conditions might be. But yes, we've been involved in that. And uh, we have folks who specialize in infection control. Uh, they work in the healthcare industry and other spaces. And uh, that's been a big part of, of what they do. Uh, but I think we're going to look at each new flu season now with a little different uh, light than, than we probably have in the past. Yeah, I think we're going to have a little different perspective on, on, these, on these flu seasons. You know, because you, you think about it, and the flu's been around for many, many years, and we don't have a, a good vaccine. You know, we have vaccines, but not necessarily do they get the right strain every year and so on and so forth. And and I'm wondering if we're going to end up with the same situation with the COVID, if it mutates and um, we just have a very difficult time putting together a vaccine. I could see the industrial hygiene world really being busy trying to help business owners and workplaces deal with that for many years to come. Well, let's hope they're successful. I'm kind of getting out on the ragged edge of my <laughs> knowledge of bio issues, but uh, yeah, you're right. Uh, influenza vaccines have always been a problematic issue, uh, getting the right target. Uh, but we've got so many new technologies now with all the genomics and uh, laboratory techniques that are available to us. Uh, let's hope that we, we can come up with an effective solution to this issue that we're facing now. You know, we're, uh, we're getting close to halftime, but I wanted to kind of set the table for the second half. Um, you, we had talked a little bit prior to the show about uh, one of the keynote speaker, the keynote speaker, he did both an uh, opening session and then the closing session, Renee Rodriguez. 
And uh, very interesting. I, got, I only got to see the closing session, and he was a very interesting gentleman talking about how people kind of receive information in the brain and the different regions of the brain and, and how people, you know, um, strive for and want this, you know, structural order and predictability. Um, I wonder what your, your takeaway was from uh, Rene Rodriguez. Let's, let's start with the opening session, and then when we come back, we'll talk a little more about the closing session. Sure. Um, yeah, I found Rene to be very thought provoking and I'll have to second what I said earlier. It was a whole lot easier to pay attention and try and absorb and take notes sitting here in front of my computer than, uh, than sitting in a large lecture hall. But uh, in the opening session, he talked about the courage scale, which I don't believe is actually his development. He referenced another author that probably had developed that. And in a nutshell, that's basically where we operate. I mean, we can be on the low end of that scale with things like uh, guilt, apathy, fear, anger, uh, and then we get to courage, which is kind of the middle point. And then up on the upper end of the scale, we've got things like openness, willingness, uh, reason, those kinds of things. And there was a rating as to the amount of energy that uh, uh, are encompassed in these emotions. And he said, he draws the line at courage. Anything below that line tends to be taking energy from the group, whether it's your personal situation or you know, business situation. But if you're above the line, you're actually adding energy uh, to the group, positive energy, if you will. And his theme was working above the line, whether you're communicating in business. We all know what happens if you know, we or dealing with an angry employee, it may be better than an apathetic employee because at least the angry employee has a side or a point of view. But he was encouraging us to try and focus our communications on work above the line. And then he got into, in the closing session, the neurological basis uh, and tactics that we could use as leaders. He talked a little bit, as you said, about the regions of the brain, you know, that lower part of the brain where you know, things just happen. Our heartbeat, our re uh, breathing, uh, that's where the fight or flight uh, response kicks in versus the higher regions, the neocortex, where, you know, rationale, decision making, logical analysis take place. Uh, typically, we make better decisions when we're working up in that upper region. Um, but unfortunately, when we're under stress, uh, that fight or flight, you know, knee-jerk reaction kicks in and we probably don't make good decisions. So we tied it all together with communications and making sure that we can reduce the stress and make sure we're functioning in that rational performing part of the brain when we're making decisions. And he, he threw in uh, how we can improve communication, uh, context, uh, modeling. Uh, I've actually used a couple of his uh, uh, thoughts this morning when I gave my little story about uh, the two job opportunities that I had available. How do we put elements, communications in context for the listener to make it easier for them to hear what we're saying? But I found it very interesting and uh, frankly, uh, very helpful in considering how leadership works, whether it's at AIHA, whether it's in a business relationship, or even in dealing with your personal relationships. Uh, uh, there was actually a, um, a YouTube video that I found on the uh, Courage Scale, uh, where he goes over a lot of the parts of the presentation that he gave to us in the opening session that 
your viewers might be interested in, and we can get that to you if you're interested in making it available. But it, it was yeah. a, an amazing presentation. We could get, uh, if you could get that to us, we could have Cliff put that in the blog and then people who are interested could go ahead and do a little more, uh, a little more you know, searching around a little bit more and learn a little bit more on the topic. I just thought it was very interesting the way he presented the way, you know, the way you don't think about how you think, you know, and, and like you said, there's the fight or flight. And we see a lot of that in, in workplaces, but uh, the higher level thinking a lot of times doesn't even get a chance to, to kick in because um, when, you, when you're in that fight or flight situation, it's, it kind of uh, overwhelms your thinking process and things. So it's very interesting. I appreciate your thoughts on it. Sure. Um, what I'd like to do right now, Lindsay, is we're going to take a little break here. We're going to thank our sponsors, and then we'll be back with the second half of our interview with the current AIHA president, Jay Lindsay Cook. IAQ Radio Industry Sponsors are Particles Plus Engineers and Manufacturers of feature-rich particle counters and air quality monitoring instrumentation. Learn more at ParticlesPlus.com. Count on us. Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions available at HealthyIndoors.com. And AEML Laboratories, free FedEx shipping, great pricing, same-day results, and never a rush fee. Learn more at AEMLinc.com. Association sponsors are the Indoor Air Quality Association, a multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Learn more at IAQA.org. The American Industrial Hygiene Association, AIHA. Healthier workplaces, a healthier world. Learn more at AIHA.org. And RIA, the Restoration Industry Association, the granddaddy of the restoration industry. Network with leaders. Learn more at restorationindustry.org. Siri, the Cleaning Industry Research Institute. See more deeply through science and research. Learn more at siriscience.org. That's C-I-R-I science.org. ACGIH, advancing the careers of professionals working in the environmental health, industrial hygiene, and safety communities. Interested in defining their science at ACGIH.org. Okay, we're back for the second half of our interview. We've got Larry Cook here, the current AIHA president. And, you know, another thing that, that occurred since uh, we had Larry on, Larry Sloan on, I guess it's been about three weeks now, maybe four. Um, and he, he gave us a little, like, uh, tease on the uh, rebranding effort that's going on right now. And now we're, we're able to use the new tagline, uh, you know, healthier workplaces, a healthier world. Um, and I'm, you know, I've been on the Catalyst, which is kind of the, you know, the membership's uh, listserv where they, you know, ask and answer questions and so on. And there, it seems like there was a little, uh, you know, when, when you change, anytime you change something as big as the branding of, of an organization, and I think some people thought the name had changed when maybe it hadn't. And, uh, you know, there was a little little bit of give and take on that. I wonder if you could talk to listeners a little bit about, you know, kind of the new the new branding for AIHA. Sure. Um, first off, yeah, this is not a name change. We are still AIHA. Um, 
we haven't changed our mission or vision statement, uh, as you said, a world where all workers are healthy and safe. This is really a, a communications plan. We've changed our, our logo. Some of you may have seen it. We kind of tried to model a continuous improvement uh, philosophy that you may be familiar with from some of our risk management and ISO-based approaches, the plan, do, check, act uh, approach. Um, it's interesting. We were approached, I, I believe it was back in 2016 by OSHA to see if there was anything we could do to help with the pipeline for new people entering uh, occupational health and safety as a profession. And um, we put together a, a strategy to try and come up with a, a plan. Um, it's all about communications. Uh, we probably involved over 2,000 people in focus groups and uh, other venues to help us with this, seeing what worked, what didn't. Uh, but it's all about communicating with folks that aren't like us. We're industrial hygienists. We're always going to be industrial hygienists. It'll be a part of our lexicon. I mean, our books, Patty's Industrial Hygiene is not going anywhere. Uh, our IMIH campaign uh, is clearly front and center. But um, you know, we, we find that, as I was talking earlier about the evolution of uh, our profession, uh, people are calling themselves different things. Maybe industrial hygienist, maybe occupational hygienist. It may be environmental health and safety professional. Um, and we're trying to tie into that, um, give you a little story from my background. Um, early on, probably very few folks outside my immediate family actually knew what industrial hygiene was. And even to this day, if I'm talking to somebody and they ask me, even at the doctor's office, what do you do? Well, I'm an industrial hygienist. You can kind of read their eyes and they're saying, well, okay, maybe, but I think I'm going to move on. Mm -hmm. uh, so I kind of developed a little 10-second uh, speech. I'm an occupational health and safety professional. We help people uh, deal with uh, risks that may occur in the workplace from things like dusts, chemicals, and noise. And you, know, you can kind of see their recognition and, you know, you can gauge their body language. If they want to know more, I can expand or you know, I feel like they've got a reasonable understanding of what I do. And I think we've all done that to some respect. Many of the programs that students are graduating from these days you know, have different titles, environmental health and safety, occupational health and safety. Um, and we need to be able to communicate with those folks in terms that they understand. And as I said, you know, industrial hygiene is one element. You know, the profession has broadened into a number of areas. Many of us have our CSPs, certified professional ergonomist, a lot of multiple credential folks in, in our business these days. So our goal is to kind of refresh how we communicate with people in the hopes that we can make a connection with STEM students, with others with a science-based background that may have an interest in pursuing this profession, but may not know exactly what it is that we do and, and the opportunities that are out there for them. So now we're still AIHA, we're still industrial hygienists, but uh, we need to find out how to communicate with these new young folks that are gonna be moving into our jobs in the next decade or two. So that's really what it's all about. And you know, we've received a lot of, you know, positive comments, hundreds, in fact. Yeah, you know, there probably was a little miscommunication. Anybody, anytime someone hears a, a new communication tool or, you know, maybe the implication was name change, uh, you know, we get some pushback on that, but that is not what this is about. You know, I, uh, 
you mentioned, and I've heard myself in, you know, being around that, that there's concern about who's going to, you know, be coming up in the pipeline. And that's been around for, you know, 10 years, at least, uh, maybe more. Are you seeing any, uh, any movement there? Are, are more people getting involved in the uh, industrial hygiene programs in the, in, in the colleges around the country? Are they, you know, for a long time, they were dropping industrial hygiene in, in, in at least some of the universities. Uh, what, what kind of progress is being made? Well, I would uh, agree with your assessment that pure industrial hygiene programs may not be uh, as robust as or as you know common as they were in academia. Uh, you know, 20, 30 years ago, but we are seeing growth in other programs. I mean, we're seeing it move from the graduate level training to the undergraduate level. We're seeing health, safety, environmental, these other issues that we talked about earlier being being rolled in. So uh, nowadays we're seeing undergraduates with specialties in environmental health and safety or occupational health and safety being available for the workforce. So one of our challenges is to get these folks' attention and convince them what a great uh, angle industrial hygiene is on a career and what what a potential future it, it holds for you and your career yeah, but uh, okay. yeah we, we are seeing growth in that area we've got a very active student uh, section chapter we've been really emphasizing that uh, we had active student chapters years ago it slowed down a little bit but there's been a real effort to uh, to reinvigorate those those groups at the universities within these educational programs to get students attention and to get them involved in AIHA while they're still students. And uh, I think that uh, that's bearing fruit. It's going to take some while, uh, some time, but uh, I'm, I'm hopeful. That's not something that will happen overnight. I also know you're working with, uh, we've got Mary Lopez on next week from ACGIH and you've been working on some things with ACGIH. I wonder if you could talk to listeners a little bit about the, the things you're working together on. Sure. I, I just had a really great conversation with Mary uh, a week or so ago, uh, getting to know each other uh, a little bit better. Uh, we also just completed our joint leadership meeting once a year, typically at conference where we're face-to-face. -face. The, uh, the leadership, both the volunteer and staff leadership for the two organizations sits down to kind of talk about what's going on, how are we working together, are there other opportunities out there, and we had a good call. Um, obviously, we work together on the conference. Uh, ACGIH is a big part of what we do. Uh, they have a lot of presenters and help us with our technical programs. One thing some of your listeners may not know is that our journal, uh, the Journal of Occupational Environmental Health, uh, is a joint effort between AIHA and ACGIH, and there's actually a board of directors uh, for the journal that's comprised of members from both organizations. Uh, we've got a couple of other things going on. Um, there is some work on ventilation that's been driven by this uh, COVID issue. Uh, their industrial Ventilation Committee is working on ventilation issues around COVID and disinfection for the industrial environment, and our Indoor Environmental Quality Committee is kind of following a similar track uh, in the, uh, the non-industrial environment, so that's an area where we're staying in touch. Uh, the, uh, the bioaerosols book that was uh, recently redone, uh, AIHA 
you know, our uh, bioaerosols committee and a couple of others uh, played a big part in helping with that revision. You know, there are more opportunities out there. Just last week, we talked about uh, the issue of respiratory protection, particularly as we're dealing with that in this, this COVID world. Uh, both of our organizations have expertise there. That might be an opportunity where we can work together. And total worker health, I mentioned that earlier, uh, another great opportunity where we you know, see the potential for continued collaboration. But uh, that ties right in with what I was speaking to earlier is how we work with our uh, sister organizations to, to leverage our impact. Yeah, you were also part of several uh, committees and the Indoor Environmental Quality Task Force. Uh, you've got a wide range of experience in, in the industry as well. You've dealt with all kinds of IH issues. It was interesting. You know, to talk to you about, uh, you kind of, I guess you were in charge of facilities for a biomedical research or a lab, and, uh, you, you know, you've been around quite a bit. You've done a lot of interesting things. Um, in your experiences, is indoor environmental quality and those types of issues, is that becoming something that facility managers and owners are more aware of and that, that they're more concerned about than they had been maybe in the past? Uh, you're exactly right. Um, I did take a hiatus in my consulting career and uh, spent some time at a, uh, an R&D facility. We actually did chemical toxicology research. We were you know, dealing with some pretty nasty chemicals. And in the, that environment, you, know, you kind of have to take the approach of guilty until proven innocent. But uh, to your point, mm -hmm. I had responsibility for other facility-related functions, and in that role, I joined an organization called the International Facility Management Association. Uh, it was in the early 90s. We were just starting to talk about mold and dampness in buildings, and you know, obviously asbestos had been around for a while, lead-based paint, many of those other built environment issues. And at my first meeting, uh, the reaction was really interesting. Everybody was like, wow, you're an industrial hygienist. We've been talking about these issues for a long time. Why don't we know more about your profession? So I think a lot of those built environment issues that we've been facing have, have really driven um, facility managers to get more involved and learn more about these issues that affect workers. Really, the indoor air quality movement and dampness and mold in buildings have been the two key drivers uh, of that discussion. So to your point, yes. I think they have, over the last 10 or 20 years, become much more involved in, in these kinds of concerns. I've got one other question before we go to a, what we call a roundup, and I'm hoping we can bring Larry Sloan on. Uh, I also have a text question, but I think I'll bring that up in the roundup. Um, you know, you've been around, like I said, you've, you've been involved in, in numerous aspects uh, dealing with health and safety and industrial hygiene. What do you see as kind of a emerging topics um, that, that people should keep an eye out on? Well, clearly, uh, we're in this, uh, and I hate to use the term almost, but this knee-jerk reaction to COVID that's been forced upon us. Um, as we spoke earlier, I think this is going to continue to drive a lot of the issues, the decisions, and the directions that we take for the foreseeable future. Uh, the other one that I'm excited about is that concept of total worker health. Uh, it kind of ties into our, our new tagline, healthier workplaces, a healthier world. 
um, all of those things that come together to impact the worker and his health status, whether it's, you know, the classic stressors of chemical, physical, biological, or, you know, the other things, the psychological elements of work, um, long-term public health issues that may come into play. I really think that's where the leading edge of, of the profession is going to be moving. You know, we're going to look at, look at it in a more holistic light, I think. Anyway, let's, uh, John, let's go to the roundup and see if we can get Larry on. Uh, let's see if we've got Larry. Hello, Larry. Welcome. Hello. Welcome back Hello. to IAQ Radio. Ah, it feels like it was yesterday. Yeah, it wasn't too long ago, and uh, I'm sure you've been a busy man since. You had the conference and uh, a whole, whole bunch of other things going on. I wanted to bring you in and see if you had any uh, anything you'd like to add to what we've talked about already. Well, Lindsay's done a phenomenal job of covering the conference and, uh, of course, the brand refresh, the evolution. Uh, I'll make a quick comment about that whole brand refresh. And, again, the point is how do we first generate awareness about the profession to people that know absolutely nothing about industrial hygiene. So it's an awareness campaign first. And then once we make aware of who we are, what we do, and what the value to society is, then it's about educating folks. And we're going to be doing a deeper dive into specific industrial segments, such as the construction industry, as well as the chemical sector, which is where I came from when I was an engineer. And we want to start educating these folks, whether they're senior management, uh, operations people, HR, different functional capacities in these industries to better explain what it is that industrial hygienists do. And then after you educate, then it's all about filling that pipeline. And that's the efforts that we're doing with the schools. Lindsay mentioned the outreach to undergraduate and graduate programs. And when I was traveling, I would spend quite a bit of my time speaking with students around the country. So I would pick a city, I'd go to the city, I'd set up meetings with our local chapters, and then I would hit one or two schools in that area and I would go in and I would talk about AIHA and how great a career in industrial hygiene is. And I'd actually get a couple converts. So uh, it was really a fun value proposition for me to reach out and talk to the students. Thanks, Larry. That, that's that's awesome. a good point. Uh, this really is a multifaceted effort. Yeah. I've got a text, too, from a listener saying, ask about the AIHA Foundation and scholarships. I think that's something a lot of people aren't that aware of. Uh, either one, uh, let's throw it out to either one of you. Well, I, I don't know, Larry, I'll take a stab at it, but uh, you know, we developed years ago a uh, educational foundation, so to speak. Uh, it is a separately organized uh, tax-exempt entity. Contributions are tax-deductible, but the primary aim is to support education of the next generation of folks that are going to be moving into our field, and we've got a fairly robust program. We've got millions of dollars in our endowment now and we use the the revenue from that to fund scholarships i think and correct me if i'm wrong larry we ordered something on the order of uh you know 40 scholarships uh, awarded last year at conference that's right uh, these uh, help students both at the undergraduate and the graduate level to pursue their education uh, in industrial hygiene related topics but uh, we do a lot of fundraising things some of you may have heard about the uh, industrial hygiene foundation fun run that's usually held at conference we had a virtual fun run this this year so you could compete at home and send in your time 
that raises money. But uh, really, uh, most of the funds come through donations from corporate uh, sponsors as well as individual members of our profession who want to give back. Interesting. And Cliff, I want to make sure I, I gave you a chance if you had a final question for either Larry or Lindsay. Thanks, Joe. Um, not so much a question, but more a suggestion. Uh, because you have uh, money in the foundation, because you're already working with undergraduate uh, college students, I'm wondering if you ever thought about impacting these kids when they were still in grade school, you know, uh, when they first start taking science. And that might be a, a great opportunity. And you know, it might take a, a couple of little demonstrations of what happens when you mix some chemicals together or, or, or whatever. And it might just pique the interest uh, in some of these kids uh, when they're really young and, uh, you know, thinking about what do they want to do when they grow up. So just a suggestion. If I may, Cliff, this is Larry. Uh, it's a phenomenal idea. And around the country, there are volunteers that actually go into elementary and junior high schools and they do exactly that. They'll, uh, you know, they'll bring in a, a noise dosimeter, for example, and they'll bang a drum real loud or they'll blow a horn or something and they'll show the kids how to measure noise and what the uh, long-term impact is on the hearing. So as we develop more robust programs to educate students of all ages, we actually have a plan to go after first the upper elementary school, mm -hmm. the middle school, the high school, because you're right, we've got to get these folks aware of the fact that occupational health is a thing. And by the way, you can make you know, a very nice career out of it and right. really take your career in a lot of different directions. So that's a great point. Well, thank you. Cool. Yeah, if I could step in there, uh, I mentioned earlier our IMIH campaign. We actually have a little competition going uh, among the, the regions uh, as to who can do the most presentations in various and sundry venues, whether it's at schools, science fairs, or what have you. Uh, we also have folks who are participating in the Safety Matters program, which was a NIOSH effort that we've uh, partnered with them on. Uh, to kind of help high school students understand what are some of the risks and hazards that they might experience in their first job. A lot of kids get thrown into a job somewhere and have no safety orientation or background. So yeah, we've got a lot of uh, a lot of issues and initiatives in that area. It also seems now might be a good time to develop some uh, online type resources for teachers. They're or for parents now at this point, they're, they're just, you know, crying out for uh, better information that they can present. Uh, and if you, you know, had some online type resources available that people could use a lesson plan or whatever, uh, mm. that may also help uh, get the word out about the AIHA and uh, just the, the whole idea of a healthier work and, you know, healthier workplaces and a healthier world. Um, both of you mentioned, I believe both the, the total worker health, um, and I, I'm not that familiar with that. Maybe can one of you, ex you know, give us a little more information on what you mean by total worker health and what that, that initiative has been about? Well, I'll jump in there. We touched on it earlier, but total worker health is a fairly recent uh, development. I mean, some of us have been looking at those issues uh, for some time, but it's really kind of come into its own at conference. We had a really robust track on total worker health, actually some sessions on how COVID-19 and total worker health intersected. But uh, 
it's all about the holistic view of, of worker health, uh, whether it's, you know, one of the classical stresses that they may experience in their job, high noise environment, chemical or dust exposure, in addition to, you know, those psychological elements of work, uh, you know, the public health arenas, what, uh, what type of healthcare, wellness programs, uh, you know, does the employee have access to proper health care outside the work environment? There are any number of issues that can go into that. And I, I think we will continue to see that area grow. Uh, there are a number of centers of excellence around the country at educational institutions that are looking at this. Some of them you can actually go and get a certificate or a degree specialty in total worker health. Um, yeah, we partner with those. We've developed liaisons for total worker health and uh, have people that are interacting to see how AIHA can better participate in those efforts. I don't know, Larry, Larry you've got anything you want to add to that? Feel free. I will add that uh, as part of the whole total worker health task force, which has really been engaged since uh, about a year ago now, not only are we looking at those centers of excellence and we have volunteers that are curating the resources that are available through these six centers of excellence around the country to make sure that if you're an IH practitioner, you understand what's available, who the target audience is, and how to use it. And the other part of this piece that I think we're getting towards, uh, as Lindsay knows very well, is if you're an IH professional, you are one of a series of stakeholders. And so how do you communicate with other people that are in the total worker health chain of excellence, if you will. That's my little terminology. How do you communicate with the occupational physician or the nurse, whether they're a corporate or maybe they're at a clinic around the corner? How do you communicate with somebody's primary care physician, if need be? So to help the industrial hygienist better understand their role in communicating with other stakeholders in the total worker health paradigm is really important for the profession. You know, I, I keep hearing over and over communication. I think that's uh really been a point of emphasis for both of you. I think it's an important one because, you know, I've worked a lot with industrial hygienists over the years and uh, some are pretty good at communication. Others, uh, you know, they could use a little work in that arena, but uh, you know, uh, I think it's something that I, I'm glad to see you're putting a big focus on that. I know recently you also over the last, I guess, maybe five, 10 years now have focused on ethics and, and making sure that uh, industrial identists have have to have continuing education in ethics, and I, I can I can see why because I, I would imagine a lot of times people get pulled, you know, because they they may be working for a large company and then they've got employees on the other side that are going well, what the company's doing to us is not right, and they they might get stuck in the middle. I wonder if either of you could comment on that. Well, I'll, I'll jump in. Uh, ethics has been a big part of our profession for a number of years. Uh, we have a professional code of ethics for practitioners. Uh, a lot of that effort is managed by what used to be ABIH, the American Board of Industrial Hygiene, the credentialing body that provides the uh, CIH designation. They're now going by the uh, parent acronym of Board for Global Credentialing, and they've offered some other certifications within that. But you're right, they have instituted an ethics requirement to be recertified, uh, to, to renew your CIH, if you will. Uh, and AIHA has been involved in developing and presenting 
a lot of those ethics programs, either face-to-face -face training, online training, or you know, written materials in the Synergist. We have a pretty regular column on ethics where a dilemma is presented and you know, folks can write in with their solutions and it's, it's discussed it in greater detail in a later issue. So there are a lot of, uh, a lot of initiatives in that arena and uh, we continue to look for more ways to, to make that a core element uh, of our practice. And before we go, uh, let's start with you, Larry. Anything you'd like to add that maybe we missed or just uh, you'd like to reemphasize for listeners? I think my parting words are that we keep hearing this term, black swan event. But, you know, the whole COVID pandemic has created this incredible opportunity for the profession and the association to really step up. And I'm just so proud of the whole Back to Work Safely initiative that we started literally six weeks ago. Lindsay and former President Kathy Murphy and I were on a phone call, and within 10 minutes, we crafted a strategy as to how we were going to address this. And now we have 20-some-odd documents. I just got off a phone call uh, with representatives from the American Library Association. So as this initiative has rolled out, we are forging relationships with a lot of other allied organizations that we never would have thought that we would have any collaboration with. So I'm very excited about COVID being able to help elevate the presence of the profession in AIHA. Interesting. And, and before we go, Lindsay, final thoughts? Well, great, great thought, Larry. And we didn't get to that in our discussion. I would encourage anybody to go to the website backtoworksafely.org and mm -hmm. see any of those 21 documents now. Some are in Spanish. We've had over a million downloads of those in the last five weeks. So, uh, mm -hmm. you know, just an incredible effort. And I think that kind of leads me into my closing comment is flexibility is what we're all about. How do we... Uh, respond and deal with emerging situations and, you know, kind of keep our focus on our, our mission and core values. But that will continue to be a, an emphasis for us. And hopefully we've got our eyes on the ball. So thanks, Joe. It's been great being with you. I hope I haven't bent your ear too much, but uh, it's been fun. Fantastic, guys. John had the website up and we'll make sure Cliff gets it in the blog. I want to thank both Lindsay Cook and Larry Sloan for joining us this week on IAQ Radio Plus. Uh, healthier workplaces, a healthier world. Fantastic, excellent discussion. Really appreciate both of you joining us. Uh, we'll be back next week. We've got Mary Lopez joining us from ACGIH. So we'll, we'll be doing another, we're going to talk a little bit about how they establish threshold limits and a little bit on standard uh, development as well. I think that's a topic that a lot of our listeners are very interested in. So this is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks to this week's guest. Uh, Lindsay Cook, also want to thank my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Slotnick. John, you got to have faith at the controls. Most importantly, our growing group of loyal listeners will be back next Friday at noon with the next episode of IAQ Radio Plus. For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reed saying thanks for listening. 